the Jodcast, lighting your fire, with George Bendo, Libby Jones, Indy Leclerc, and Mark Perver. The Jodcast, November 2013 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Mark, and joining me in the studio today are George and Libby. Hello. How are you? In the show this time. Indy talks to Dr. Adam Della about a new radio imaging survey, and we answer your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Mark talks to Pierre Shemo about the orbital angular momentum of light in this month's job bite. For this month's job bite, I'm interviewing a second-year PhD student here at the Jodrell-Bank Centre for Astrophysics, Peter Schemmel. Welcome. Hi, Mark. So what you're working on is something that I'm finding really interesting because it's it could be applicable to a lot of astronomy, uh, and it's all about the orbital angular momentum of light. So that's something that I'm not too familiar with. Possibly some of the listeners won't be. So if we sort of take it one thing at a time, what do we mean by orbital angular momentum? Well, to start off, normally when you're in grade school, you learn that light goes from point A to B in a straight line. And that works really well for most things. Even in complicated research, people can use that approximation all the time. Later on, you find out when you go to university or college, that light can also spin. So you can think of it as like a ball rolling on the ground. Uh, If I kick a football to you, it's going in a straight line, but it's also rolling, and so it's spinning. That's called spin angular momentum. Now, light can also have something called orbital angular momentum. Now, orbital, you can kind of think of the Earth orbiting around the sun. So it can spin on its axis, or spin, and it can also orbit. So if light has orbital angular momentum, what is actually happening is the light is orbiting its own propagation axis, which means that as it's going from point A to B, it's also moving in a helix. So imagining it like a corkscrew, is that the kind of... Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. just like a corkscrew. Some other examples are like a spiral slide at a playground. That would be a single helix, or we would call it a mode 1 OAM. OAM is orbital. Orbital angular angular momentum, yes. Uh, A mode 2 would be a double helix, and the most famous double helix is DNA. Mm -hmm. So you can think of, if you've seen pictures of DNA and that twisting motion, that's what a mode 2 OAM wave would look like. Now there's also my favorite, which is a mode 3, and that might sound a bit exotic, a triple helix, but we actually see them every time you go to the grocery store. And that's fusilli pasta, or rotini, as Americans call it. Okay, yeah. So that's actually a mode 3 helix, or a mode 3 OAM wave. And so you can look at that wave, and it's like this corkscrewing kind of plane altogether. Mm -hmm. And that's what an OAM mode 3 looks like. Wow. So how can we tell that these modes of OAM actually exist? Well, we know that OAM actually exists for two reasons. The first one is that we can measure it and we can make it in the lab. But the second one is it comes straight out of Maxwell's equations. The equations that describe how light propagates. propagates. Exactly, right. Uh, And so if you do some complicated mathematics, not just your normal deriving the waves and everything like that, but if you look at actually how the momentum moves in the equations, you can actually find that these higher-order modes have an orbital angular momentum component. 
And the interesting thing was that people knew that it could exist from these equations. And we knew that other particles could have orbital angular momentum, like electrons in an atom. But we really couldn't experimentally show that light or photons could have orbital angular momentum until around 1992, when a group from the Netherlands ended up finding out that not only could light have orbital angular momentum, but that it was also quantized. Now that means that the orbital angular momentum states that the light has can only be integer numbers, so minus 1, plus 1, plus 10, minus 10, but you can't have numbers like 1.5 or 3.3. Those aren't allowed. So that's something like in quantum theory with atoms that, or electrons in atoms have certain states. Exactly, right. And so the way we actually can make this in the lab, or the ways that we can actually measure it in the lab, I should say, is that we actually look at the intensity and phase structure of these waves. Now, a normal intensity pattern looks kind of like a Gaussian shape. It's nice and smooth, and it has a little bit of a hump in the middle, and then it tapers out at the end. An OAM wave looks a bit like a donut, so it has a big hole in the middle, so we can look for that. But a lot of things can make holes in the middle of the waves, so the better way to look for it is to measure the phase. And phase is just a fancy word that physicists use for position on the wave. And so what we look for is we measure the phase, and we look for these phase dislocations, or these cuts in the wave. And those come from the helical structure of the wave. So a mode 1 OAM, so if you think about the spiral slide, would have one dislocation. A mode 2, or a double helix like DNA, would have two dislocations. And we can measure the phase, and we can count the number of dislocations, and we can visually see what the mode number of the wave is. So a mode 3 OAM beam would have three dislocations, and so on. And the light that's sort of around us now, let's say, is that likely to most mostly be what you'd call a mode zero of OAM? Right. Or will there be some little bits of the, the other modes? You can, what's called decompose light into all different kinds of modes. And it turns out that a lot of it is mode zero, or it has zero OAM. Uh, and that's the most common. But there can be little bits of light that have more OAM or less OAM than mode zero. And so what we're trying to do is make devices that we can put on telescopes that filter out all the mode zero and leave only the little bit of mode one or two or minus one and minus two behind. That way we can visually see that and filter out all the rest. So it's kind of like making a special pair of glasses. Okay. So I, I mean, I'm thinking of an analogy now to like the polarization of, of light. So we, well, we use that all the time in 3D cinemas and 3D TV now, don't we? Sure, sure. And it's a similar sort of thing, only it's sort of an extra step of complexity, I guess. Right, but right. the equipment that you're making, what kind of frequencies of light does that work at? Could I, uh, could I put it on the Lovell telescope and use it for radio observations? Actually, we're hoping to do that at some point in time. The interesting thing, or the great thing about OAM, is that you can detect it at any frequency because this comes from Maxwell's equations. So anything that Maxwell's equations describe can have OAM. A lot of people work in optical wavelengths, and people have done quite a lot of work with OAM in optical wavelengths. They've done things for optical trapping of particles and getting them to spin in circles or drive little gears in nanomachines, for example. Wow. But we like to work at 100 gigahertz, so a lower frequency but pretty high for radio, which is normally around 1 gigahertz, 
10 maybe, something like that. And the reason we work at 100 gigahertz is because we can make the devices to convert these OAM states from mode 0 to mode 1 or 2 and vice versa out of plastics that we can buy cheaply and they don't have too big of a size and they're not too massive or too heavy. So it just makes machining them the components and making the waves much easier. But if we wanted to go to a lower frequency, like at the level, we'd have to make it much bigger, but it would still work the exact same way that we do today. Okay. And I guess as an astronomer, the, the question that I'd be really interested in is if we were able to start picking up these OAM modes in the photons that we're receiving from things in the universe, what could we possibly learn about different astrophysical phenomena? I know that's a huge question, but it would be a whole that's extra a dimension of information, question. wouldn't it? Yes, that's a very tricky question. Um, the real answer is that if I knew what we could find out, there wouldn't be much point in doing it. Now, <laughs> yeah, <there be>? okay. <laughs> but to be fair, uh, a lot of people have some ideas about what we could see. And some of them in the radio regime are light from rotating black holes. So as a black hole is rotating, it's twisting space-time. And that twisting space-time is giving orbital angular momentum to light as it passes through or comes out of the accretion disk. So you could measure it from that. Uh, you could also measure it from masers or dust or stars. There's all kinds of processes that can theoretically make OAM. Now, no one's really measured it from outer space yet. And so that provides a bit of a challenge to us because we don't really know if there's going to be OAM coming from it. Even if there is, are we able to measure it? Is the signal too low? Is the beam too big? There's a lot of tricky bits with measuring OAM compared to a normal bit of radiation. And that's because the OAM beams have that big hole in the middle. And so normally for a mode zero beam, you can look at a very little tiny piece and it doesn't matter where on the beam you look, you'll be able to pick up radiation. But for OAM, we have to see the entire beam, or at least the very inner portion. But there's a big intensity dip there, which means that we don't have a lot of power, which means that it's, our equipment needs to be very, very sensitive in order to pick up a signal. So it's very difficult to see these things, even if they're there. We just might not know it. Okay. Well, it sounds like it's something that could come along in the future. Maybe there'll be a telescope with an OAM receiver on it, a radio telescope. We're hoping so. <laughs> We're hoping so. People have seen them in the atmosphere, actually, and the atmosphere actually is made up of multiple layers in a simplified model, and they have a bit of turbulence to them, so a bit of random distribution in the layer density and spacing and things like that. And people at the United States Air Force have actually been working on tracking these OAM photons coming from the atmosphere. And they've been able to measure the number of atmospheric layers and the relative velocity of those layers to each other. So OAM can be made in nature. We've seen that through these experiments or measurements. And they can be used to do relevant measurements in physical terms. So we're hoping that we can take that and move to bigger systems out in space and learn new information and things like that. Wow, that's brilliant. That's it's always great for astronomers to find out there's a bit more information in the photons they're picking up. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing those on some telescopes one day. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime, Mark. Thanks for that, Mark. Now we have Indy talking to Dr. Adam Deller about the MGI radio survey.
I'm with Dr. Adam Della from Astron in the Netherlands today. Hello, Dr. Della. Hello. And you've just given a talk about the MJIVE survey. Um, could you explain to us what that's about, please? Sure. So that's a, uh, a very high angular resolution survey in the radio. So uh, surveys in the radio have been carried out for a, for a very long time, starting off uh, in, in Cambridge and, and other places. Um, but what it sets it apart from, from uh, other radio surveys is that it's performed at very high angular resolution using a technique called very long baseline interferometry, or VLBI. And so with VLBI, we make use of telescopes that are thousands of kilometres apart to give us the highest angular resolution imaging that we can do with any technique in, uh, in astronomy, actually. And so using this, we can look for very compact sources of radio emission. So what instrument are you using to do this survey? Because, I mean, VLBI involves multiple telescopes, but I think you're using a specific array. Yeah, exactly. So there's a number of different VLBI arrays in the world, and the one that we're using for the MJIVE 20 project is the Very Long Baseline Array in the US, which is 10 25-metre diameter dishes spread across the continental US and one in Hawaii and one in St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. What kind of resolution does that give you? Um... Yeah, so um, resolution is, is frequency dependent in the in the radio because the telescopes are a constant distance apart, but as you go to higher frequency, the, the wavelength of the radiation you're receiving is getting, getting shorter. Um, at the frequency of this survey at 1.4 gigahertz, our resolution is around about 5 milliarc seconds, so 5 thousandths of an arc second. To put that in some kind of context, if you were going to image the moon at an angular resolution of 5 milliarc seconds, you would have something like a million pixels across the surface of the moon. So we're looking at very, very precise um, images in, in the radio. So what's the point of just doing a, a survey of compact objects? Well, people do surveys for, for lots of reasons, and the, the prime one is usually just to see what's there. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> in this case, that's, that's sort of a valid argument, actually, because no one has really done this before. Surveying with VLBI is very difficult, precisely because the resolution is so high. If you wanted to make an image of the whole sky, you would need petabytes and petabytes and petabytes. Uh, I, I can't even uh, comprehend the numbers myself um, of data. And so it's it's been computationally and uh, logistically very difficult in the past. And uh, around about five years ago, we developed a new technique to let us zoom in and make these high-resolution images just around uh, the sources that we're interested in rather than having to make an image of the, of the whole field at once. Okay. So how, how did you pick out the ones that you're interested in in the first place. Okay, so th there we make use of uh, an existing radio survey that's been done at, at lower resolution, and we uh, we sort of mark out all of the sources, and then when we observe a field, we, uh, we produce little mini cutouts, little pencil beams around uh, each of the sources that we're interested in, and we ignore all the, the empty space in between. And actually, uh, it's also useful anyway, because typically we want to compare what's going on on the very small scales, what we see with these high angular resolution observations with what we see at the, at the large scales with the, the lower angular resolution observations anyway. So you, you want them both. So the types of objects that you're primarily interested in when you're looking at this sort of resolution uh, are AGNs, uh, active galactic nuclei. Could you tell us maybe a bit more about those? Yeah. So with this high angular resolution, you're looking at a small region, obviously, a very a very small bit of space. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
in order to see something from a from a sort of cosmological distance, it must be pretty bright uh, coming out of that such a such a small region. And uh, once you get get out to a sort of cosmological distance, a reasonable a reasonable distance away from from our galaxy, the only thing capable of generating you know, in a sustained fashion that kind of energy is a is an active galactic nuclei, which is being powered by accretion onto a supermassive black hole. And um... How did, what do these things look like? We're talking about just um, jets, I guess. Yeah. So um, in the in the optical, what you what you tend to see from an AGN is the accretion disk. So the the, the gas and material that's falling onto the black hole is being accelerated uh, as it's whipping around very close to the black hole. It heats up and it and it glows. Um, but in the radio, you don't see that so much because we're not really uh, so sensitive to that thermal radiation. But at the same time, as as the the black hole's eating this material, it tends to spit some back out as well in the form of highly collimated, very rapidly moving, very relativistic jets. And uh, this plasma in those jets generates a radio emission, which we can observe. So how many, how many sources have you observed so far then? At this point in time, um, we've observed something like 20,000 sources from uh, the, the first survey. The, the first survey is the one that we're using as our finder catalogue. So that has about a million sources in it. And uh, so we're getting there, but slowly. Uh, we, don't, we don't really expect to finish the whole thing. And of those 20,000 sources we've looked at, we've detected about 4,000. Okay, just to clarify for our listeners, FIRST Survey isn't just the first in time, it's an acronym. Uh... <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned that. The faint images of the radio sky at 20 centimetres. So it's a, it's a survey performed with the very large array in the US. And how long has, uh, has M-Drive been, uh, been running to, to see these 4,000 sources? Um, about a year and a half now. So um, we've, we get uh, our time in short blocks, about an hour at a time, when the telescope would otherwise be idle. So it's called filler time, actually. And uh, we've been getting about three or four hours, maybe four or five hours a week uh, on the telescope. So it's been building up quite quickly. Okay, and how much time does it have left? At this rate, we'll we'll run through our allocation probably by the end of next year. But uh, assuming you know the science is still progressing well, and we think that it's worthwhile to extend it, we can we can apply for more time, more of this unused filler time. Okay. So, what interesting things have you seen in your in your sample of sources so far? So, uh, what I talked about today, and what I think is the most interesting thing that we've seen so far, was that in in the uh, the the first survey, our finder catalog, we have objects of different brightness. There are bright ones and there are faint ones. But we think all of them are basically the same kind of source. They're all coming from radio loud AGN. So sure. ultimately being produced by the, the jets in these uh, from these supermassive black holes. Mm-hmm. And so we thought at the beginning that we would expect the bright sources to, to be pretty much the same as the faint ones. So if we, we looked at a bright source with VLBI at high resolution, we wouldn't see on average, different characteristics to faint ones. But that wasn't what we saw. We saw that the faint ones were actually more likely to be compact than the bright ones. And so that set us uh, to a lot of scratching of our heads, and we've come up with a few different explanations of why that might be. This might sound like a bit of a simple question, but what would what would differentiate bright and faint sources in the first place if they're coming from the same sort of object? One thing might be how far away they are. So a, a more distant source might be might be fainter. Another thing is simply that the strength of the jet, how much material is being spat out and how fast it's being spat out. Another thing actually is how long the jet has been turned on for because as this material gets shot out away from the black hole, it plows into the, the gas in the surrounding galaxy and then eventually in the surrounding intergalactic medium. And uh, the, the longer that goes on for, the more energy gets pumped in and the, uh, the more radio emission that we see. Okay. Is there anything else that, that you guys have found? You talked about um, finding some lenses in your talk. Yeah. So um, 
one of the nice things about having a very large sample is that you can start to go through and look for rare objects. And uh, gravitational lenses are, are rare objects. They occur when you have a, a large mass in between you, the observer, and, uh, and a background source. And if the alignment is just right, then uh, you can actually see multiple images of the background source because the light is being deflected by the, the massive object in between. And they're quite rare. There's um, not so many known, especially not so, not so many that are radio loud. And they have certain certain observational properties. They should look a certain way uh, if we if we look for them in a high angular resolution map. And so we we did some automated processing, and we uh, we found some candidates. And so we're following some of them up now. But uh, before we started doing the follow up, we actually checked to see if any of them were known lenses, and indeed two of them already were. So. That was both uh, exciting and disappointing. Uh, exciting because it showed that the technique worked, but disappointing because they weren't our lenses, that were someone else's. Yeah. <laughs> but you do have hopes of finding your own lenses with the, with the data that you, you have and that you're going to collect. Then. Exactly, yeah. We have four very good candidates that we're following up at the moment and then, uh, and then a few other, maybe more borderline ones as well. And we're, so we're getting new, new data at a different frequency that will help us uh, confirm or deny whether they are lens sources. Finally, um, once the survey, the, the M-Drive survey is done, do you think that there's a possibility of applying that sort of technique of zooming in on, on, on particular bits of sky to, to, well, to other areas of the sky and comparing them with other um, source catalogs, other surveys? So everything that we've been doing so far has been with uh, the VLBA, this uh, network of 10 telescopes in the U.S., and uh, I mean that's a that's a fantastic instrument, but it's it's ten twenty five meter dishes. So it's in terms of collecting area, it's not the most sensitive instrument out there. But there are there are other facilities coming along. Uh, ultimately, the square kilometer array, which will be uh, if if built out to its final uh, form, will have comparable resolution, but uh, much much improved sensitivity. And so we could do this not down to sources of something like a Milijansky, which is what we're doing at the moment, but down to the to the Microjansky level potentially. And st that starts to probe a different source population. So at the moment, we're looking at all kind of radio loud uh, active galactic nuclei. And if we can probe down a bit fainter, then we start to get into the regime of radio quiet AGN and also starburst galaxies. Excellent. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff to do in the future then for this project. There always is. <laughs> Great. Thank you very much for talking to us today. My pleasure. Thanks for that, Indy. And now we come to that part of the show where we fit in all the other things we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So I'm going to start off with uh, an exciting mission to Mars, the first mission to Mars ever launched by India. And unbelievably, they are doing this for about 72 million US dollars or 45 million pounds, which, I mean, that would be a lot of money for me, but for a mission to another planet, that is incredibly good value. How much is that in terms of Manchester United players? Ooh, um... Half a Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> right, it's half. It's just over half of one Cristiano Ronaldo transfer fee to Real Madrid, and apparently it's also about half of the cost of a Boeing Dreamliner, which is an aeroplane. So, getting to Mars for half the cost of, a, of an aeroplane, or half the cost of one football player. Yeah, one footballer's uh, right foot. <laughs> <laughs> so, are they going to land on Mars, or are they going to orbit around it? They're going to orbit around it. It's quite interesting, actually, the way it's getting there. And also, um, in the last couple of days at the time of recording, it, it's hit a little bit of a snag in its uh, in its trip. So it's not going straight to Mars. It's going to swing around and around the Earth a number of times in a very elliptical orbit. An elliptical orbit means that the craft was not following a cir circle around the Earth, but was doing a sort of oval shape. And it was such a stretched oval that it's in its initial orbit it was going a minimum distance of only 247 kilometres from the surface of the Earth. 
and a maximum distance of 23,500 kilometres. So you can imagine that is really elliptical. And the idea is that they gradually do small engine burns that take them into a higher and higher orbit until eventually it swings right away, part of the way around the sun, and then comes within the orbit of Mars. Uh, so the problem was that one of these engine burns didn't quite work. It was supposed to raise from about 70,000 kilometres at maximum distance from the Earth to about 100,000, but it hasn't made it all the way there. However, they think they've got plenty of spare fuel to have another go, so hopefully that's not going to be a big problem. And then when it arrives, it's going to orbit around Mars and it's going to study the atmosphere. And they, they aim to try and find out why Mars lost all its water. So I'm not sure exactly how one will answer that question, but that's what they aim to do. And the name of this mission is the Mars Orbiter Mission, or MOM. I keep wanting to call it MOM. 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 Uh, but informally, it's also known as, mm, I apologise if the pronunciation is appalling, Mangalayan, which means Mars craft. I kind of like MOM better as an informal <laughs> name. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, this one follows on from an Indian moon mission in 2008 called Chandrayaan-1 which is just a moon craft, and it's all part of an Indian space program that apparently aims to put humans into space by 2018. Once it sets off towards Mars, it's supposed to take about 300 days to get there, so about 10 months, which isn't too bad. And it's actually going to be contemporary with a NASA mission called MAVEN, which is costing 671 million US dollars, <laughs> so nearly 10 times as much. But they say that these two craft are going to have science results that complement each other, so I hope that's the case. The Olympic torch has gone on from the furthest from Earth and has gone on a walk outside the International Space Station um, as wow. part of the torch relay for the Russian Winter Olympics. Is that the first time that an Olympic torch has been into space? No, this is the third time a torch has been into space um, for the Olympics, but the other two have been for the Summer Olympics. Uh, starting in Atlanta in 1996. Wow. Uh, was the very first time. But this is the first time it has gone outside the space station. And they had a special tether put onto the torch instead. Oh, wow. And they took out away the gas canisters and the flame. So we replaced that, put a tether on it so it wouldn't float away from the cosmonauts. Uh, and it had a five hour spacewalk attached to them. That's While cool. they were doing other stuff outside the space station. So the Olympic flame was not actually burning in space. They took the flame and... What did they do with the flame? Well, the flame wasn't really lit as such. It was more the flame holder. But it has the capacity to light when it's back on Earth and they replace the gas canister. So it's it's what they're going to light the, 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 the Olympic flame of in the stadium for the games. But... It's not lightable in space due to health and safety reasons. And also the lack of oxygen would be a big, big problem. Yeah, you want it <laughs> eating up the oxygen. I mean, I guess in space it would be kind of hard to light a torch. I realise you could sort of have an oxygen supply from underneath, but it, it's kind of a realistic science lesson. It's like, look, you take a flame into space, it won't burn. In space, no one can hear you scream and no one can... No one can uh, I, guess if you, <laughs> I guess if you had fuel and an oxidizer, that would make it a mini rocket, and then you would change the orbit of the space station. That's a good point. You wouldn't want it to act as a little thruster, would you? Ooh. Or would you? That would be quite exciting, but probably unintended. <laughs> probably <laughs> too exciting. Gravity. There you go. You yes. <laughs> oh, I like the film Gravity, yeah. 
And uh, leading into uh, my odds and ends, um, we had a satellite come back to Earth, uh, being drawn back to Earth by the Earth's gravity. It was a satellite launched by the European Space Agency called the Gravity Field and Steady State Ocean Circulation Explorer, or GOCE, G-O-C-E. This was a satellite which did very uh, interesting Earth science. It was in a orbit of under 260 kilometers above the Earth's surface. There's actually enough atmosphere at that altitude that it can produce drag on the satellite. And the satellite had a thruster which uh, expelled ionized xenon gas to keep the satellite up in orbit. So it was actually, um, it had to sort of thrust continuously. It was a very weak thruster, but still had to thrust. The reason why the satellite had to fly that low was because it was actually measuring very minute variations in the Earth's gravitational field. And so it had to be as close to the Earth's surface as possible. And, um, there are a couple ways that it actually measured gravitational fields. One, it had, um, some uh, very sensitive uh, detectors on board the satellite itself. Two, the satellite's orbit would vary just a little bit as it traveled around the Earth's surface, and they could do ranging measurements uh, to the satellite using lasers to find its precise distance. So between both of these, they could actually find like really, really small variations in Earth's gravity, much smaller than what you would be able to feel if you were just to walk around uh, the Earth's surface yourself. So, for example, um, the Earth's gravity is a little bit lower around the southern tip of India uh, because the Indian subcontinent is pushing under the Himalayan mountains and all of the mass has kind of moved into the Himalayas and it's kind of left a little bit less mass underneath the southern tip of India. Wow. This satellite ran out of propellant uh, about three weeks ago or so, and on October 21st, and since it's flying through a very thin part of the Earth's atmosphere, but uh, still flying through the atmosphere, it eventually slowed down. And so it crashed down to Earth on the 11th of November, uh, kind of landing off the uh, southern tip of uh, South America quite a ways. This was actually uh, the first uncontrolled entry of NISA satellite in 25 years, uh, which is actually a very good record. It's very good that it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, because if you've seen the movie Gravity, for example, you know that there's um, a lot of uh, space debris, uh, which is flying around at very high speeds relative to other satellites uh, flying around um, or orbiting the Earth. Um, the fact that this thing fell out of orbit means that it doesn't become part of that uh, debris uh, flying around in space. Somebody could have been splattered, but on the other hand, um, when you think about the Earth as a very large surface, uh, two-thirds of the Earth's surface is water, so it uh, could hit nothing. Um, three-quarters of the satellite did burn up on re-entry, uh, but that's three-quarters of 1,100 kilograms. So there was still a somewhere around 300 kilograms or so that still could have hit somebody, although that would have uh, flown down in bits and pieces. Various satellites have come down and never hit anybody, I guess. 
There's been quite a few in the past few years. Yeah. Satellites have been coming People, back. There, there have been quite a few satellites that have come down, but apparently no one has died from being hit by a satellite. So it's more probable that just by, for example, um, living in the United States, that you're going to be attacked by a shark just because people in the United States have been attacked by sharks. No one in the United States has been hit by a satellite. I'd also just like to point out the irony that... Um, this satellite was measuring the strength of gravity and finally was brought to Earth by Earth's gravity. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and that irony is not lost on the East press release either, which says Gochi gives in to gravity. Ah, yes. Excellent. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> and now, dodging space debris, but not your questions. Dr. Mark Perver answers your questions in this month's Ask an Astronomer. I'm going to tackle two questions this month. The first is from Matt, who asks, Is there a lower limit to the frequencies of electromagnetic radiation that are usable or detectable with current equipment? Is there a lower limit to how low a frequency can exist? Well, in short, no. There isn't a theoretical limit to how low you can go, but there are limits in practice. So let's think about what we're talking about first. Electromagnetic radiation is what I'd call light, and it's often described as a wave. You can visualise it like a water wave, rippling up and down. The wave has a frequency, which is how often it completes one ripple. So if you wiggle your hand in water, you get a wave with a high frequency if you wiggle fast, and a wave with a low frequency if you wiggle slowly. A light wave can have any frequency, and all the different frequencies you can have make up what's called the electromagnetic spectrum. At one end of the spectrum are very high frequencies, and we call these gamma rays and x-rays. As the frequency gets lower, we get to ultraviolet, and then visible light, which is what we see with our eyes. So then the visible part of the spectrum is a rainbow, going from violet at the high frequency end, to red at the low frequency end. So that means what we see as colours are actually the different frequencies of visible light. Then if you carry on reducing the frequency, you get to infrared, then what astronomers call submillimeter, then microwaves, and finally radio waves. All of that is the same stuff, from the x-rays used in hospitals, the light you see around you, to the radio waves that carry signals to your television aerial. It's all electromagnetic radiation, and the only difference is the frequency. It's called electromagnetic radiation because it's made of an electric field and a magnetic field, and that's what light is. So that's the same sort of electric field that makes electricity flow in a wire, and it's the same sort of magnetic field that makes a magnet stick to your fridge door. A field, in this case, just means a space in which some force is exerted on certain things. So an electric field in a wire makes the little particles called electrons move, and that's electricity. A fridge magnet creates a magnetic field around itself, which pulls it towards metal, such as you have in your fridge door. You get a wave when you have electric and magnetic fields that change in strength. So the wave isn't going up and down like water. What's waving is the strength of the electric and magnetic fields. They rise and pull harder, then they drop and pull less hard and then repeat. This makes two amazing things happen. Firstly, the two fields power each other. So as the electric field changes, it produces a changing magnetic field. And as the magnetic field changes, it produces a changing electric field. And so they actually drive each other. Secondly, the energy within the two fields moves along through space in a straight line. 
and that energy, of course, moves at the speed of light, because these two fields together are light. The changing electric and magnetic fields are an electromagnetic wave. So, to bring it back to the question, that wave changes with a certain frequency, as we've said, and the question was, can you keep making the frequency lower and lower? Well, if we take the limit of that, you could have electric and magnetic fields together that don't change at all over time, and that would sort of be electromagnetic radiation with a frequency of zero, except then it wouldn't go anywhere. It wouldn't actually travel like radiation does. So really, it would stop being a wave, and it's like completely still water. You could say it has waves of zero frequency in it, but that's really the same as saying there are no waves at all. But you can get as close to zero as you like without actually hitting it. We start giving names to it once we get down to radio waves, but that's only for our convenience. The fields can change ever more slowly, even if it means they take the whole age of the universe to oscillate once. In radio astronomy, we're accustomed to detecting frequencies of about one gigahertz, which means a billion oscillations per second, and that's. Quite low for light, even if it doesn't sound it. But telescopes like LoFAR, the Low Frequency Array, go down to about 10 megahertz, or 10 million oscillations per second. This lets us see things in space that we might be unable to detect at other frequencies. In particular, radiation from very distant objects is reduced in frequency as it travels through our universe, because the universe is expanding, and that redshifts or reduces the frequency of. Radiation that comes from the far reaches of the cosmos, and LoFAR can pick this up. So why not go lower and see even more? Detectors could go very low as long as you can measure the electrical magnetic field changing. You can pick up the wave. The problem for astronomers is that very low frequencies don't actually reach us, and the main barrier is our atmosphere. There's a layer to our atmosphere called the ionosphere. Which stops very low frequencies of radiation from getting through. The material in the ionosphere is hot enough to be ionized plasma, which means the atoms it is made of don't have their electrons bound to their nuclei, which is the way it is for colder things. Instead, the electrons are free to move all over the place. They interact with electromagnetic radiation that's coming in from space, for example, and they will then actually oscillate. At a certain frequency called the plasma frequency, so if the radiation is below the plasma frequency, the plasma oscillations in the ionosphere absorb or reflect its energy, so it doesn't pass through. Now this varies depending on the weather and other factors like the sun's activity, but our ionosphere stops radiation below about 10 megahertz from getting through to the ground, which is why LoFAR stops observing around there. Now, if you're out in space, you might think you'd be okay because you're outside the atmosphere, and your situation is improved somewhat. But there's still ionized plasma in space. Part of the interstellar medium, which is the stuff between the stars, is plasma. The plasma frequency goes down with the density of electrons in your plasma, and the interstellar medium is really sparse, so it lets through lower frequencies than our atmosphere. All the way down to about 10 kilohertz, which is 10,000 oscillations per second. But below that, the radiation will all have been absorbed by the interstellar medium before it gets to us. 
which is a shame because there are electromagnetic waves at lower frequencies than that generated by things which have electric and magnetic fields and spin in space, like pulsars. They produce radiation at frequencies below 1 kilohertz because they rotate at less than a 1,000 times a second, but we don't get to see that radiation directly. Sometimes it's absorbed by a nebula around the pulsar, as in the case of the Crab Nebula, and then we get to see the nebula glowing as it re-emits the energy at higher frequencies, but we can't see the original radiation directly. So in conclusion, if you have a space with no free electrons in it at all, then electromagnetic waves can propagate at as low a frequency as you like, except actually zero. Detectors can certainly go down to very low frequencies. But the interstellar medium in our own galaxy limits astronomers to about 10 kilohertz, while the Earth's atmosphere limits us more strictly to around 10 megahertz. And so, in light of this difference, I'd definitely be in favour of having a big array of very low-frequency radio telescopes on the Moon, where there's no atmosphere. I think that would be brilliant. The second question is from Peter Baxter, who has a query about quantum entanglement and black holes. And he says, if you entangled a pair of particles near a black hole, and one of the particles fell into the black hole and the other one didn't, would you be able to observe the properties of the particle that escaped? Wouldn't the properties of both particles, such as their spin, be destroyed when one particle was crushed by the black hole? Wow, that is a deep question. And I'm not going to pretend that I know everything about entanglement. In fact, I'm not sure anyone does. But first, let's look at what entanglement is. It's part of quantum theory, which is the physics of very small things. If two particles are entangled, it means that their measurable properties are related to each other. So Peter used the example of spin as a property. Fundamental particles like electrons have spin, and it's a form of angular momentum. Angular momentum is a property found in the microscopic world and all the way up to the macroscopic world. So particles spin, tennis balls spin, and whole planets spin. So now let's suppose that the two particles in the question are entangled. Maybe they were formed together in a reaction of some kind, and that's why. They might, for example, have to have opposite values of spin. So like one of them spinning clockwise, one of them spinning anti-clockwise. That would be a form of entanglement. The weird thing about quantum theory is, before you measure this spin, you assume that each particle has a bit of both senses of spin. Particle A could be, for example, half a clockwise spinning particle and half an anti-clockwise spinning particle. And then particle B would be in a similar state. Now, if you're confused about how something can be in more than one state at once, then that's good because you're confronting the weirdness of quantum theory. When you measure the spin of particle A, you will find it's either clockwise or anti-clockwise, not both. Some people interpret this as meaning that the particle changes from a bit of both to a single state due to the measurement that you make, because a measurement always involves some interaction with the particle, so it could change it. There are other interpretations, but I will just baffle myself if I go into them. The fact is that however you look at it, once you measure the spin of particle A, you know the spin of particle B must go the opposite way because the particles were entangled with one another. So, what if you measure particle A 
but particle B has fallen into a black hole. A black hole is another strange concept. It's not an empty hole, but rather a very dense thing. It has mass concentrated into a tiny volume. A black hole can be formed by the collapse of a star at the end of its life, for example. And then close to the black hole, its gravity is so strong that nothing can escape, not even light. And this means that astronomers, frustratingly, can't get information directly from inside a black hole. At least, we don't think we can, but you'd have to ask Stephen Hawking about whether it might be possible. He, and other theoretical physicists, think about what the nature of black holes might be, and how they might fit into quantum theory. And there are lots of open questions. One of those is, what happens to the properties of things when they fall into a black hole? And this is really what Peter is asking. Do those properties just get destroyed? And what does that mean for entangled particles whose properties are related to each other? Well, there's still debate. No current observational evidence can settle it, and I certainly can't. All known black holes are much too far away for us to throw a particle into, so we can't test it very easily. However, Einstein's theory of gravity, general relativity, does show that black holes themselves do have some properties, and this isn't really disputed. One of the properties of a black hole is mass, as we've already said. One is electrical charge, and one is angular momentum. So when particle B falls into a black hole, we don't know what happens to all its physical properties. But its mass becomes part of the black hole, so the black hole gets bigger and heavier. Its charge becomes part of the black hole, if it has charge. So a black hole can be positively or negatively charged. And its spin becomes part of the black hole as well, so black holes can rotate, and that's angular momentum. So as weird as black holes and quantum theory undoubtedly are, it seems that they do allow the universe to conserve energy, charge, and angular momentum. Conservation means that those quantities don't increase or decrease in the universe overall, they just get moved around. So we should be able to measure the spin of particle A, which has escaped the black hole, and when we do, we'll be able to say that its entangled partner, particle B, must have given the opposite amount of spin to the black hole when it fell in. And as for other properties of the particles, speculate away. So thank you to Matt and Peter for the questions. We really like to try and answer your questions, however deep they may be. And so if you want to get in touch, please do so via the usual channels. Thanks for that, Mark. And now on to the feedback. We had no post this episode, but we've had an email from Matt, who lives in Boulder, Colorado, in the United States. And he bemoans the fact that there are no telescopes there, apparently. But he says we do have wildfires, blizzards and flooding. I hope not all at the same time. And he says he loves listening to his jogcasts, especially the geekier ones where people discuss more gory details of pretty much anything. So thank you very much for that. I would suggest that he travel down south to New Mexico, which has lots of telescopes. <laughs> uh, both amateur and professional. As well as some very good amateur astronomy sites. And better weather. <laughs> <laughs> J.R. Edge sent via email, the forum is not functioning. And we want to apologize for this because we have put the forum out to pasture and retiring it from the jogcast. Do do do. <laughs> we felt that um, its purpose was served now by Facebook. 
and Twitter. Yes. So you can no longer get in contact with us via the forum. Sad face. <laughs> Let's just take a moment to remember the forum. <laughs> there we go, that's long enough. There we go. On Facebook, the Lovell Quinter Arboretum got in touch, which was nice. And that is actually the personal garden of Sir Bernard Lovell, who was the founder of Dodgewell Bank Observatory. And it's a place that the public can now go with gardens spanning 28 acres. And so if you're in the area, why not go and visit the Lovell Quinter Arboretum? And thanks also for all the likes and shares. So on Twitter, Jen, first of all, says, uh, looking at the interviews I did for Jodcast at NAM 2012, I don't remember most of them. She must have been having a good conference. <laughs> or she must have been really busy. Um, I think she was probably really busy. And... That was the one in Manchester, which yes. we were all organizing. So we were quite hectic when putting out an episode every single day as well. So we did get to talk to lots of people and did jog cast out quite a lot. Well, uh, Jen will be working at NAM 2014 in Portsmouth, and she's invited all of her friends to come down there to visit her during the meeting. Hooray! Whoop! Also, have a few other tweets. Uh, Grazla says, a visit to Jardel Bank today has gotten me excited about space again. We also have Coco Nino, who's put in a request for us to do more stuff on the Kepler results on exoplanets. And, as always, thanks for the retweets and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so by the website at www.jogcast.net. You can no longer do so via the forum. Sorry about that. But you can via Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget, you can send us some posts. The address is on the website. And so that brings us to the end of the show. And it only remains to say thank you very much to Peter Schemmel and Adam Della for the interviews. The editors were Adam Avison and Mark Perver. The producer was Mark Perver. Until next time, ciao on. Bye. Bye. Bye.